Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 40, Midnight, Folksle. Harpooners and sailors stand the watch, lounging, leaning, and lying in various attitudes, all singing in chorus. Farewell and adieu to you, Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you, ladies of Spain. Our captains commanded. Oh, boys, don't be sentimental. It's bad for the digestion. A Nantucket sailor interrupts. Take a tonic. Follow me. He sings and I'll follow. Our captain stood upon the deck, a spyglass in his hand, a viewing of those gallant whales that blew at every strand. Oh, in your tubs, boys, in your boats, and by your braces stand, and we'll have one of those fine whales, hand, boys, overhand. So be cheery, lads, be cheery, may your hearts never fail, while the bold harpooner is striking at the whale. A mate's voice calls from the quarter deck. Eight bells there, forward! Another Nantucket sailor joins in. Alas, the chorus, eight bells there. Do you hear, bellboy? Strike the bell eight, thou pip, thou blackling, and let me call the watch. I've the sort of mouth for that, the hog's head mouth. So, so, he thrusts his head down the scuttle. Starbolines ahoy! Eight bells there below. Tumble up. A Dutch sailor joins in. Grand snoozing tonight, matey. Fat night for that. I mark this in our old mogul's wine. It's quite as deadening to some as filipping to others. We sing, they sleep. I lie down there like ground tear butts. At em again. There, take this copper pump. And hail them through it. Tell them to a vast dreaming of their lasses. Tell them it's the resurrection. They must kiss their last and come to judgment. That's the way. That's it. Thy throat ain't spoiled with eating Amsterdam butter. A French sailor pipes up. Ist boys, let's have a jig or two before we ride to anchor in Blanket Bay. What say ye? There comes the other watch. Stand by all legs. Pip, little Pip, hurrah with your tambourine. Pip sulks and sleepily don't know where it is. The French sailor rejoins, Beat thy belly then and wag thy ears. Jig it, men, I say. Mary's the word. Hurrah. Damn me, won't you dance? Form now, Indian file, and gallop into the double shuffle. Throw yourselves, legs, legs. And an Icelandic sailor responds, I don't like your floor, matey. It's too springy to my taste. I'm used to ice floors. I'm sorry to throw cold water on the subject, but excuse me. A Maltese sailor says his part. Me too. Where's your girls? Who but a fool would take his left hand by his right and say to himself, How'd ye do? Partners! I must have partners! A Sicilian sailor agrees. I, uh, girls, uh, and a green, uh, then I'll hop with ye. Yea, I turn a grasshopper. 
a Long Island sailor encourages them all, Well, well, ye sulkies, there's plenty more of us. Ho corn when ye may, I say. All legs go to harvest soon. Ah, here comes the music. Now for it. An azure sailor, coming up the scuttle, pitches the tambourine to Pip. Here's you are, Pip, and there's the windless bits. Up you mount. Now, boys. The half of them dance to the tambourine. Some go below. Some sleep or lie among the coils of rigging. Oaths aplenty. The azure sailor continues dancing. Got it, Pip. Bang it, bellboy. Ring it. Dig it. Stig it. Quig it. Bellboy. Make fireflies. Break the jinglers. Pip responds. Jinglers, you say? There goes another dropped off. I pound it so. A Chinese sailor joins in. Rattle thy teeth then and pound away. Make a pagoda of thyself. The French sailor replies, Merry mad, hold up thy oop, Pip, till I jump through it. Split jibs, tear yourselves. Tashtego, quietly smoking. That's a white man. He calls that fun. Humph, I save my sweat. The old Manx sailor, I wonder whether those jolly lads bethink them of what they are dancing over. I'll dance over your grave, I will. That's the bitterest threat of your night women that beat headwinds round corners. Oh, Christ, to think of the green navies and the green-skulled crews. Well, well, be like the whole world's a ball, as you scholars have it. And so, tis right to make one ballroom of it. Dance on, lads, you're young. I was once. Yet another Nantucket sailor joins in. Spell, oh, whoo! This is worse than pulling after whales in a calm. Give us a whiff, Tash. They cease dancing and gathering clusters. Meantime, the sky darkens, the wind rises. Alaskar sailors joins in. By Brahma, boys, it'll be douse sail soon. The sky's born high tide Ganges turn to wind. Thou showest thy black brow, Siva. A Maltese saver, reclining and shaking his cap. It's the waves. The snow caps turn to jig now. They'll shake their tassels soon. Now would all the waves were women. Then I'd go down and chase ye with them evermore. There's not so sweet on earth. Heaven may not match it. As those swift glances of warm, wild bosoms in the dance when the over-arboring arms hide such ripe, bursting grapes. The Sicilian sailor, reclining, Tell me not of it, eh? Hark, ye lad! Fleet interlacings of the limbs, uh, lithe swayings, coyings, flutterings, lip, uh, heart, uh, hip, uh, all graze, unceasing touch and go, not a taster, observe ye, Else comes satiety, eh, pagan? Nudging a Tahitian sailor who was reclining on a map. Hail, holy nakedness of our dancing girls. The heva, heva, ah, low veiled. High palmed Tahiti, I still rest me on thy mat. But the soft soil has slid. I saw thee woven in the wood, my mat. Green the first day I brought ye thence. Now worn and wilted quite. Ah, me. 
Not thou, nor I can bear the change. How then, if so be transplanted to yon sky? Here I, the roaring streams from Pirohiti's peak of spears, when they leap down the crags and drown the villages? The blast, the blast, up, spine, and meet it! He leaps to his feet. A Portuguese sailor responds, How the sea rolls, swashing against the side. Stand for by reefing hearties, the winds are just crossing swords. Pell-mell, they'll go lunging presently. The Danish sailor replies to him, Crack, crack, old ship, so long as thou crackest, thou holdest. Well done. The mate there holds ye to it stiffly. He's no more afraid than the isle fort at Katagat. Put there to fight the Baltic with storm-lashed guns on which the sea salt cakes. And yet another Nantucket joins the group. He has his orders, mind ye that. I heard old Ahab tell him he must always kill a squall, something as they burst a waterspout with a pistol. Fire your ship right into it. An English sailor replies, Blood, but that old man's a grand old cove. We are the lads to hunt him up his whale. All respond, aye, aye. And the old Mac sailor, how the three pines shake. Pines are the hardest sort of tree to live when shifted to any other soil. And here there's none but the crew's cursed clay. Steady, helmsman, steady. This is the sort of weather when brave hearts snap ashore and keeled hulls split at sea. Our captain has his birthmark. Look yonder, boys. There's another in the sky. Lurid-like, you see? All else pitch black. Daegu says, what of that? Who's afraid of blacks afraid of me? I'm quarried out of it. A Spanish sailor aside says, he wants to bully, ah? Uh? The old grudge makes me touchy, advancing. Ay, harpunir. Thy race is the undeniable dark side of mankind. Devilish dark at that. No offense. Dagu grimly responds, none. St. Jago's sailor says that Spaniard's mad or drunk, but that can't be. Or else in his one case, our old muggle's fire waters are somewhat long in working. Yet another Nantucket sailor calls out, What's that I saw? Lightning? Yes, the Spanish sailor replies, no, Daegu showing his teeth. Daegu springs to his feet, swallow thine mannequin, white skin, white liver. The Spanish sailor meeting him face to face, knife thee heartily, big frame, small spirit. All, a row, a row, a row. Tashtego with a whiff, a row, a low. And a row aloft, gods and men, both brawlers. Hmm. And yet a Belfast sailor says, A row, a row, a row, the virgin be blessed, a row, plunge in with ye. The English sailor says, Fair play, snatch the Spaniard's knife, a ring, a ring. Old Mac sailor, ready formed, there, the ring to risen. In that ring Cain struck Abel. Sweet work, right work. No? Why then, God, maddest thou the ring? 
A mate's voice calls from the quarter-deck, Hands by the halyards, in top-gallant sails, Stand by to reef topsails. All, the squall, the squall, Jump, my jollies, they scatter. Pip shrinks under the windlass. Jollies? Lord help such jollies. Chris, crash, there goes the jib-stay. Blang, wang, God, duck lower, Pip. Here comes the royal yard. It's worse than being in the world woods the last day of the year. Who'd go climbing after chestnuts now? But there they go, all cursing, and here I don't. Fine prospects to them. They're on the road to heaven. Hold on hard. Jiminy, what a squall! But those chaps there are worse yet. They are your white squalls. They, white squalls, white whale? Sure, sure. Here have I heard all their chat just now, and the white whale, sure, sure. But spoken of once, and only this evening, it makes me jingle all over like my tambourine. That anaconda of an old man swore him to hunt him. Oh, thou big white god aloft there somewhere in yon darkness, have mercy on this small black boy down here. Preserve him from all men that have no bowels to feel fear. Chapter 41 Moby Dick I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs. And stronger I shouted, and more did I hammer and clinch my oath because of the dread in my soul. A wild, mystical, sympathetical feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. For some time past, though at intervals only, the unaccompanied, secluded white whale had haunted those uncivilized seas mostly frequented by the sperm whale fishermen. But not all of them knew of his existence. Only a few of them, comparatively, had knowingly seen him, while the number of who as yet had actually and knowingly given battle to him was small indeed. For, owing to the large number of whale cruisers, the disorderly way they were sprinkled over the entire watery circumference, many of them adventurously pushing their quests along solitary latitudes, so as to seldom or never for a whole twelve month or more on a stretch to encounter a single news-telling sail of any sort, the inordinate length of each separate voyage, the irregularity of the times of sailing from home, all these, with other circumstances, direct and indirect, long obstructed the spread through the whole wide world whaling fleet of the special individualizing tidings concerning Moby Dick. It was hardly to be doubted that several vessels reported to have encountered at such or such a time or on such or such a meridian a sperm whale of uncommon magnitude and malignity which whale, after doing great mischief to his assailants, had completely escaped them. To some minds it was not an unfair presumption, I say, that the whale in question must have been no other than Moby Dick. Yet, as of late, 
the sperm whale fishery had been marked by various and not unfrequent instances of great ferocity, cunning, and malice in the monster attacked. Therefore it was that those who by accident ignorantly gave battle to Moby Dick, such hunters, perhaps for the most part, were content to ascribe the peculiar terror he bred, more as it were to the perils of the sperm whale fishery at large than to the individual cause. In that way, mostly, the disastrous encounter between Ahab and the whale had hitherto been popularly regarded. And as for those who, previously hearing of the white whale, by chance caught sight of him, in the beginning of the thing they had every one of them, almost, as boldly and fearlessly lowered for him as for any other whale of that species. But at length, such calamities did ensue in these assaults, not restricted to sprained wrists and ankles, broken limbs, or devouring amputations, but fatal to the last degree of fatality, those repeated disastrous repulses all accumulating and piling their terrors upon Moby Dick, those things had gone far to shake the fortitude of many brave hunters, to whom the story of the white whale had eventually come. Nor did wild rumors of all sorts fail to exaggerate, and still the more horrifying the true stories of these deadly encounters. For not only do fabulous rumors naturally grow out of the very body of all surprising terrible events, as the spitten tree gives birth to its fungi, but in maritime life, far more than in that of terra firma, wild rumors abound, wherever there is any adequate reality for them to cling to. And as the sea surpasses the land in this matter, so the whale fishery surpasses every other sort of maritime life in the wonderfulness and fearfulness of the rumors which sometimes circulate there. For not only are whalemen as a body unexempt from that ignorance and superstitiousness heredity to all sailors, but of all sailors... They are by all odds the most directly brought into contact with whatever is appallingly astonishing in the sea. Face to face they not only eye its greatest marvels, but hand to jaw give battle to them. Alone in such remotest waters, that though you sailed a thousand miles and passed a thousand shores, you would not come to any chiseled hearthstone or aught hospitable beneath that part of the sun. In such latitudes and longitudes, pursuing to such a calling as he does, the whaleman is wrapped by influences, all tending to make his fancy pregnant with many a mighty birth. No wonder, then, that ever-gathering volume from the mere transit over the widest watery spaces, the outblown rumors of the white whale did in the end incorporate with themselves all manner of morbid hints, and half-formed fetal suggestions of supernatural agencies, which eventually invested Moby Dick with new terrors, unborrowed from anything that visibly appears. So that in many cases, such a panic did he finally strike, that few who by those rumors, at least, had heard of the white whale, few of those hunters were willing to encounter the perils of his jaw. But there were still other and more vital practical influences at work. Not even at the present day has the original prestige of the sperm whale 
as fearfully distinguished from all other species of the Leviathan, died out of the minds of the whalemen as a body. There are those this day among them who, though intelligent and courageous enough in offering battle to the Greenland or the right whale, would perhaps, either from professional inexperience or incompetency or timidity, decline a contest with the sperm whale. At any rate, there are plenty of whalemen, especially among those whaling nations not sailing under the American flag, who have never hostily encountered the sperm whale, but whose sole knowledge of the Leviathan is restricted to the ignoble monster primitively pursued in the north, seated on their hatches. These men will hearken with a childish fireside interest and awe to the wild, strange tales of southern whaling. Nor is the preeminent tremendousness of the great sperm whale anywhere more feelingly comprehended than on board of those prows which stem him. And as if the now-tested reality of his might had in former legendary times thrown its shadow before it, we find some book naturalists, Olassen and Povelson, declaring the sperm whale not only to be a consternation to every other creature in the sea, but also to be so incredibly ferocious as continually to be a thirst for human blood. Nor even down to so late a time as Cuvier's were these or almost similar impressions effaced. For in his natural history, the baron himself affirms that at sight of the sperm whale, all fish, sharks included, are struck with the most lively terrors, and often in the precipitancy of their flight, dash themselves against the rocks with such violence as to cause instantaneous death. And however the general experiences in the fishery may amend such reports as these, yet in their full terribleness, even to the bloodthirsty item of Povelson, the superstitious belief in them is, in some vicissitudes of their vocation, revived in the minds of the hunters." so that overawed by the rumors and portents concerning him, not a few of the fishermen recalled, in reference to Moby Dick, the earlier days of the sperm whale fishery, when it was oftentimes hard to induce long-practiced right whalemen to embark in the perils of this new and daring warfare. Such men protesting that although other leviathons might be hopefully pursued, Yet to chase and point lance at such an apparition as the sperm whale was not for mortal man. That to attempt it would be inevitably to be torn into a quick eternity. On this head, there are some remarkable documents that may be consulted. Nevertheless, some there were who even in the face of these things were ready to give chase to Moby Dick, and a still greater number who, chancing only to hear of him distantly and vaguely without the specific details of any certain calamity and without superstitious accompaniments, were sufficiently hardy not to flee from the battle if offered. One of the wild suggestings referred to as at last coming to be linked with the white whale in the minds of the superstitiously inclined was the unearthly conceit that Moby Dick was ubiquitous, that he had actually been encountered in opposite latitudes at one and the same instant of time. Nor credulous as such minds must have been, was this conceit altogether without some faint show of superstitious probability. 
For as the secrets of the currents and the seas have never yet been divulged, even to the most erudite research, so the hidden ways of the sperm whale, when beneath the surface remain, in great part, unaccountable to his pursuers, and from time to time have originated the most curious and contradictory speculations regarding them, especially concerning the mystic modes whereby, after sounding to a great depth, he transports himself with such vast swiftness to the most widely distant points. It is a thing well known to both American and English whale ships, and as well a thing placed upon authoritative record years ago by Scoresby, that some whales have been captured far north in the Pacific, in whose bodies have been found the barbs of harpoons darted in the Greenland seas. Nor is it to be gainsaid that in some of these instances it has been declared that the interval of time between the two assaults could not have exceeded very many days. Hence, by inference, it has been believed by some whalemen that the Norwest Passage, so long a problem to man, was never a problem to the whale. So that here, in the real living experience of living men, the prodigies related in old times of the inland Strello Mountain in Portugal, near whose top there was said to be a lake in which the wrecks of ships floated up to the surface, and that still more wonderful story of the Arethusa fountain near Syracuse, whose waters were believed to have come from the Holy Land by an underground passage, these fabulous narrations are almost fully equaled by the realities of the whalemen. Forced into familiarity, then, with such prodigies as these, and knowing that after repeated intrepid assaults, the white whale had escaped alive, it cannot be such matter of surprise that some whalemen should go still further in their superstitions, declaring Moby Dick not only ubiquitous, but immortal, for immortality is but ubiquity in time, that though groves of spears should be planted in his flanks, he would still swim away unharmed, or if indeed he should ever be made to spout thick blood, such a sight would be but a ghastly deception. For again, in uninsanguined billows hundreds of leagues away, his unsullied jet would once more be seen. But even stripped of these supernatural surmisings, there was enough in the earthly make and incontestable character of the monster to strike the imagination with unwanted power. For it was not so much his common bulk that so much distinguished him from other sperm whales, but as was elsewhere thrown out, a peculiar snow-white wrinkled forehead and a high pyramidical white hump. These were his prominent features, the tokens whereby, even in the limitless uncharted seas, he revealed his identity at a long distance to those who knew him. The rest of his body was so streaked and spotted and marbled with the same shrouded hue that, in the end, he had gained his distinctive appellation of the white whale, a name indeed literally justified by his vivid aspect. When seen gliding at high noon through a dark blue sea, leaving a milky way wake of creamy foam, all spangled with golden gleamings. Nor was it his unwanted magnitude, nor his remarkable hue, nor yet his deformed lower jaw, that so much invested the whale with natural terror 
as that unexampled, intelligent malignity which, according to specific accounts, he had over and over again evinced in his assaults. More than all, his treacherous retreats struck more of dismay than perhaps aught else. For, when swimming before his exulting pursuers, with every apparent symptom of alarm, he had several times been known to turn around suddenly and, bearing down upon them, either stave their boats to splinters or drive them back in consternation to their ship. Already several fatalities had attended his chase, but those similar disasters, however little bruited ashore, were by no means unusual in the fishery. Yet, in most instances, such seemed the white whale's infernal aforethought of ferocity that every dismembering or death that he caused was not wholly regarded as having been inflicted by an unintelligent agent. Judge, then, to what pitches of inflamed, distracted fury the minds of his more desperate hunters were impelled, when amid the chips of chewed boats and the sinking limbs of torn comrades, they swam out of the white curds of the whale's direful wrath into the serene, exasperating sunlight that smiled on as if at a birth or a bridal. His three boats stove around him, and oars and men both whirling in the eddies, one captain, seizing the line knife from his broken prow, had dashed at the whale as an Arkansas duelist at his foe, blindly seeking with a six-inch blade to reach the fathom-deep life of the whale. That captain was Ahab, and then it was that suddenly, sweeping his sickle-shaped lower jaw beneath him, Moby Dick had reaped away Ahab's leg as a mower a blade of grass in the field. No turbaned Turk, no hired Venetian or Malay could have smote him with more seeming malice. Small reason was there to doubt, then, that ever since that almost fatal encounter, Ahab had cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale. All the more fell for that in his frantic morbidness he at last came to identify with him. Not only all his bodily woes, but all his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. The white whale swam before him as the monomaniac incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them, till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. That intangible malignity which has been from the beginning to whose dominion even the modern Christians ascribe one half of the world's, which the ancient Ophites of the East reverenced in their statue devil. Ahab did not fall down and worship it like them, but deliriously transferring its idea to the abhorred white whale, he pitted himself all mutilated against it. All that most maddens and torments, all that stirs up the lees of the things, all truth with malice in it, all that cracks the sinews and cakes the brain, all the subtle demonisms of life and thought, all evil to crazy Ahab were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down, and then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart shell upon it. 
It is not probable that this monomania in him took its instant rise at the precise time of his bodily dismemberment. Then, in darting at the monster, knife in hand, he had but given loose to a sudden, passionate, corporal animosity. And when he received the stroke that tore him, he probably but felt the agonizing bodily laceration, but nothing more. Yet, when by this collision forced to turn towards home, and for long months of days and weeks, Ahab and Anguish lay stretched together in one hammock, rounding in midwinter that dreary, howling Patagonian cape, then it was that his torn body and gashed soul bled into one another, and so interfusing made him mad. That it was only then, on the homeward voyage, after the encounter, that the final monomania seized him, seems all but certain from the fact that, at intervals during the passage, he was a raving lunatic, and though unlimbed of a leg, yet such vital strength yet lurked in his Egyptian chest, and was moreover intensified by his delirium, that his mates were forced to lace him fast, even there, as he sailed, raving in his hammock, in a straitjacket, he swung to the mad rockings of the gales. And when running into more sufferable latitudes, the ship with mild stun sails spread, floated across the tranquil tropics, and to all appearances, the old man's delirium seemed left behind with him in the Cape Horn swells, and he came forth from his dark den into the blessed light and air, even then, when he bore that firm, collected front, however pale, and issued his calm orders once again, and his mates thanked God the direful madness was now gone, even then Ahab, in his hidden self, raved on. Human madness is oftentimes a cunning and most feline thing. When you think it fled, have but become transfigured into some still subtler form. Ahab's full lunacy subsided not, but deeply contracted, like the unabated Hudson when that noble Northman flows narrowly, but unfathomably through the highland gorge. But, as in his narrow-flowing monomania, not one jot of Ahab's broad madness had been left behind. So in that broad madness, not one jot of his great natural intellect had perished that before living agent, now became the living instrument. If such a furious trope may stand, his special lunacy stormed his general sanity and carried it, and turned all its concentered cannon upon its own mad mark, so that far from having lost his strength, Ahab, to that one end, did now possess a thousandfold more potency than ever he had sanely brought to bear upon any one reasonable object. This much, yet Ahab's larger, darker, deeper part remains unhinted, but vain to popularize profundities, and all truth is profound. Winding far down from within the very heart of this spiked Hotel de Cluny, where we here stand, however grand and wonderful, now quit it, and take your way, ye nobler, sadder souls, to those vast Roman halls of Thermes, where far beneath the fantastic towers of man's upper earth, his root of grandeur, 
His whole awful essence sits in bearded state, an antique buried beneath antiquities and throned on torsos. So with a broken throne, the great gods mock that captive king. So like a caryatid, he patient sits, upholding on his frozen brow the piled entablatures of ages. Wind ye down there, ye prouder, sadder souls, question that proud, sad king. A family likeness? Aye, he did beget ye, ye young exiled royalties, and from your grim sire only will the old state secret come. Now in his heart, Ahab had some glimpse of this, namely, all my means are sane, my motive and my object mad. Yet without power to kill or change or shun the fact, he likewise knew that to mankind he did now long dissemble, in some sort still did. But that thing of his dissembling was only subject to his perceptibility, not to his will determinate. Nevertheless, so well did he succeed in that dissembling, that when with ivory leg he stepped ashore at last, no Nantucketer thought him otherwise than but naturally grieved, and that to the quick with the terrible casualty which had overtaken him. The report of his undeniable delirium at sea was likewise popularly ascribed to a kindred cause, and so too all the added moodiness which always afterwards, to the very day of sailing in the Pequod on the present voyage, sat brooding on his brow. Nor is it so very unlikely that far from distrusting his fitness for another whaling voyage on account of such dark symptoms, the calculating people of that prudent isle were inclined to harbor the conceit that for those very reasons he was all the better qualified and set on edge for a pursuit so full of rage and wildness as the bloody hunt of whales. Nod within and scorched without, with the infixed, unrelenting fangs of some incurable idea, such a one, could he be found, would seem the very man to dart his iron and lift his lance against the most appalling of all brutes. Or, if for any reason thought to be corporally incapacitated for that, yet such a one would seem superlatively competent to cheer and howl on his underlings to the attack. But be all this as it may, certain it is that with the mad secret of his unabated rage bolted up and keyed in him, Ahab had purposely sailed upon the present voyage with the one only and all-engrossing object of the hunting white whale. Had any one of his old acquaintances on shore but half dreamed of what was lurking in him then, how soon would their aghast and righteous souls have wrenched the ship from such a fiendish man? They were bent on profitable cruises, the profit to be counted down in dollars from the mint. He was intent on an audacious, immitigable, and supernatural revenge. Here, then, was this gray-headed, ungodly old man, chasing with curses on a Job's whale round the world, at the head of a crew, too, chiefly made up of mongrel renegades and castaways and cannibals, morally enfeebled also by the incompetence of mere unaided virtue or right-mindedness in Starbuck, 
the invulnerable jollity of indifference and recklessness in stub and the pervading mediocrity in flask. Such a crew, so officered, seemed specially picked and packed by some infernal fatality to help him to his monomaniac revenge. How was it that they so aboundingly responded to the old man's ire? By what evil magic their souls were possessed, that at times his hate seemed almost theirs, the white whale as much their insufferable foe as his? How all this came to be, what the white whale was to them, or how to their unconscious understandings, also, in some dim, unsuspected way, he might have seemed the gliding great demon of the seas of life, all this to explain would be to dive deeper than Ishmael can go. The subterranean miner that works in us all, how can one tell whither leads his shaft by the ever-shifting muffled sound of his pick? Who does not feel the irresistible arm drag? What skiff and tow of a 74 can stand still? For one, I gave myself up to the abandonment of the time and the place. But while yet all a rush to encounter the whale could see not in that brute but the deadliest ill. Chapter 42 The Whiteness of the Whale What the white whale was to Ahab has been hinted. What, at times, he was to me as yet remains unsaid. Aside from those more obvious considerations touching Moby Dick, which could not but occasionally awaken in any man's soul some alarm, there was another thought, or rather vague, nameless horror concerning him, which at times, by its intensity, completely overpowered all the rest, and yet so mystical and well-nigh ineffable was it that I almost despair of putting it in a comprehensible form." It was the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me. But how can I hope to explain myself here, and yet, in some dim, random way, explain myself I must, else all these chapters might be not. Though in many natural objects, whiteness refiningly enhances beauty, as if imparting some special virtue of its own, as in marbles, japonicas, and pearls, and though various nations have in some way recognized a certain royal preeminence in this hue, even the barbaric grand old kings of Pegu, placing the title Lord of the White Elephants above all their other magniloquent ascriptions of dominion, and the modern kings of Siam unfurling the same snow-white quadruped in the royal standard, and the Hanoverian flag bearing the one figure of a snow-white charger, and the great Austrian empire, Caesarian, heir to overlording Rome, having for the imperial color the same imperial hue, and though this preeminence in it applies to the human race itself, giving the white man ideal mastership over every dusky tribe, and though, besides all this, Whiteness has been even made significant of gladness, for among the Romans a white stone marked a joyful day. And though in other mortal sympathies and symbolizings, 
This same hue is made the emblem of many touching noble things, the innocence of brides, the benignity of age. Though among the red men of America, the giving of the white belt of wampum was the deepest pledge of honor. Though in many climes, whiteness typifies the majesty of justice in the ermine of the judge and contributes to the daily state of kings and queens drawn by milk-white steeds, Though even in the higher mysteries of the most august religions it has been made the symbol of the divine spotlessness and power, by the Persian fire worshippers, the white forked flame being held the holiest on the altar. And in the Greek mythologies, great Jove himself made incarnate in a snow-white bull. And though to the noble Iroquois, the midwinter sacrifice of the sacred white dog was by far the holiest festival of their theology, that spotless, faithful creature being held the purest envoy they could send to the great spirit with the annual tidings of their own fidelity. And though directly from the Latin word for white, all Christian priests derive the name of one part of their sacred vesture, the alb or tunic, worn beneath the cassock. And though among the holy pomps of the Romish faith, white is especially employed in the celebration of the passion of our Lord, though in the vision of St. John, white robes are given to the redeemed, and the four and twenty elders stand clothed in white before the great white throne, and the holy one that sitteth there white like wool. Yet for all these accumulated associations, With whatever is sweet and honorable and sublime, there yet lurks an elusive something in the innermost idea of this hue, which strikes more of panic to the soul than that redness which affrights in blood. This elusive quality it is which causes the thought of whiteness when divorced from more kindly associations and coupled with any object terrible in itself to heighten that terror to the furthest bounds. Witness the white bear of the poles and the white shark of the tropics. What about their smooth, flaky whiteness makes them the transcendent horrors they are? That ghastly whiteness it is much imparts such an abhorrent mildness even more loathsome than terrific to the dumb gloating of their aspect, so that not the fierce fanged tiger in its heraldic coat can so stagger courage as the white-shrouded bear or shark. With reference to the polar bear, it may possibly be urged by him who would feign to go still deeper into this matter that it is not the whiteness separately regarded which heightens the intolerable hideousness of that brute. For analyzed, that heightened hideousness, it might be said, only arises from the circumstance that the irresponsible ferociousness of the creature stands invested in the fleece of celestial innocence and love. And hence, by bringing together two such opposite emotions in our minds, the polar bear frightens us with so unnatural a contrast. But even assuming all this to be true, yet were it not for the whiteness, you would not have intensified terror. As for the shark, the white gliding ghostliness of repose in that creature, when beheld in his ordinary moods, strangely tallies with the same quality in the polar quadruped. 
This peculiarity is most vividly hit by the French in the name they bestow upon that fish. The Romish mass for the dead begins with requiem eternum, eternal rest. Whence requiem, denominating the mass itself and any other funeral music. Now in allusion to the white, silent stillness of death in this shark and the mild deadliness of his habits, the French call him Requin. Bethink thee of the albatross. Whence come those clouds of spiritual wonderment and pale dread in which that white phantom sails in all imaginations? Not Coleridge first through that spell, but God's great unflattering laureate, nature. I recommend the first albatross I ever saw. It was during a prolonged gale in waters hard upon the Antarctic seas. From my forenoon watch below, I ascended to the overclouded deck and there dashed upon the main hatches. I saw a regal, feathery thing of unspotted whiteness and with a hooked Roman bill sublime. At intervals, it arched forth its vast archangel wings as if to embrace some holy ark. Wondrous floodings and throbbings shook it. Though bodily unharmed, it uttered cries as some king's ghost in supernatural distress. Through its inexpressible strange eyes, methought I peeped to secrets which took hold of God. As Abraham before the angels, I bowed myself. The white thing was so white, its wings so wide, and in those forever exiled waters, I had lost the miserable warping memories of traditions and towns. Long I gazed at the prodigy of plumage. I cannot tell, can only hint, the things that darted through me then. But at last I awoke, and turning, asked a sailor what bird was this. A Ghani, he replied. Ghani? I never had heard that name before. Is it conceivable that this glorious thing is utterly unknown to men ashore? Never. But some time after, I learned that the Ghani was some seaman's name for albatross, so that by no possibility could Coleridge's wild rhyme have aught to do with those mystical impressions which were mine when I saw that bird upon our deck. For neither had I then read the rhyme nor knew the bird to be an albatross. Yet in saying this, I do but indirectly burnish a little brighter the noble merit of the poem and the poet. I assert then that in the wondrous bodily whiteness of the bird chiefly lurks the secret of the spell, a truth the more evinced in this, that by a solecism of terms there are birds called gray albatrosses, and these I have frequently seen, but never with such emotions as when I beheld the Antarctic fowl. But how had the mystic thing been caught? Whisper it not, and I will tell. With a treacherous hook and line, as the fowl floated on the sea. At last the captain made a postman of it, tying a lettered leathern tally round its neck, with the ship's time and place, and then letting it escape. But I doubt not, that the leathern tally meant for man was taken off in heaven when the white fowl flew to join the wing folding, the evoking, and the adoring cherubim. 
most famous in our Western annals and Indian traditions is that of the white steed of the prairies, a magnificent milk-white charger, large-eyed, small-headed, bluff-chested, and with the dignity of a thousand monarchs in his lofty, overscorning carriage. He was the elected Xerxes of vast herds of wild horses, whose pastures in those days were only fenced by the Rocky Mountains and the Alleghenies. At their flaming head, he westward trooped it like that chosen star which every evening leads on the hosts of light. The flashing cascade of his mane, the curving comet of his tail, invested him with housings more resplendent than gold and silver beaters could have furnished him. A most imperial and archangelical apparition of that unfallen western world, which to the eyes of the old trappers and hunters revived the glories of those primeval times when Adam walked majestic as a god, bluff-bowed and fearless as this mighty steed. Whether marching amid his aides and marshals in the van of countless cohorts that endlessly streamed it over the plains like in Ohio, or whether with his circumambient subjects browsing all around at the horizon, the white steed gallopingly reviewed them with warm nostrils, reddening through his cool milkiness. In whatever aspect he presented himself, always to the bravest Indians he was the object of trembling reverence and awe. Nor can it be questioned from what stands on legendary record of this noble horse, that it was his spiritual whiteness chiefly which so clothed him with divineness, and that this divineness had that in it which, though commanding worship, at the same time enforced a certain nameless terror. But there are other instances where this whiteness loses all that accessory and strange glory which invests it in the white steed and albatross. What is it that in the albino man so peculiarly repels and often shocks the eye, as that sometimes he is loathed by his own kith and kin. It is that whiteness which invests him, a thing expressed by the name he bears. The albino is as well made as any other men, has no substantive deformity, and yet this mere aspect of all-pervading whiteness makes him more strangely hideous than the ugliest abortion. Why should this be so? Nor, in quite other aspects, does nature in her least palpable but not the less malicious agencies fail to enlist among her forces this crowning attribute of the terrible. From its snowy aspect, the gauntleted ghost of the southern seas has been denominated the white squall. Nor, in some historic instances, has the art of human malice omitted so potent an auxiliary. How wildly it heightens the effect of that passage in Frossart when, masked in the snowy symbol of their faction, the desperate white hoods of Ghent murder their bailiff in the marketplace. Nor, in some things, does the common hereditary experience of all mankind fail to bear witness to the supernaturalism of this hue. It cannot well be doubted that the one visible quality in the aspect of the dead which most appalls the gazer 
is the marble pallor lingering there. As if indeed that pallor were as much like the badge of consternation in the other world as of mortal trepidation here. And from that pallor of the dead, we borrow the expressive hue of the shroud in which we wrap them. Nor even in our superstitions do we fail to throw the same snowy mantle round our phantoms. All ghosts rising in a milk-white fog. Yea, while these terrors seize us, let us add that even the king of terrors, when personified by the evangelist, rides on his pallid horse. Therefore, in his other moods, symbolize whatever grand or gracious thing he will by whiteness, no man can deny that in its profoundest idealized significance it calls up a peculiar apparition to the soul. But though without dissent this point be fixed, how is mortal man to account for it? To analyze it would seem impossible. Can we, then, by the citation of some of those instances wherein this thing of whiteness, though for the time either wholly or in part stripped of all direct associations calculated to impart to it aught fearful, but nevertheless is found to exert over us the same sorcery, however modified, can we thus hope to light upon some chance clue to conduct us to the hidden cause we seek? Let us try. But in a matter like this, subtlety appears to subtlety, and without imagination no man can follow another into these halls. And though, doubtless, some at least of the imaginative impressions about to be presented may have been shared by most men, yet few perhaps were entirely conscious of them at the time, and therefore may not be able to recall them now. Why, to the man of untutored ideality, who happens to be but loosely acquainted with the peculiar character of the day, does the bare mention of Whitsuntide marshal in the fancy such long, dreary, speechless processions of slow-pacing pilgrims, downcast and hooded with new-fallen snow? Or, to the unread, unsophisticated Protestant of the Middle American states, why does the passing mention of a white friar or a white nun evoke such an eyeless statue in the soul? Or, what is there apart from the traditions of dungeoned warriors and kings, which will not wholly account for it, that makes the White Tower of London tell so much more strongly on the imagination of an untraveled American than those overstoried structures, its neighbors, the Byward Tower, or even the Bloody? And those sublimer towers, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, whence, in peculiar moods, comes that gigantic ghostliness over the soul at the bare mention of that name, while the thought of Virginia's Blue Ridge is full of a soft, dewy, distant dreaminess? Or why, irrespective of all latitudes and longitudes, does the name of the White Sea exert such a spectralness over the fancy, while that of the Yellow Sea lulls us with mortal thoughts of long-lacquered, mild afternoons on the waves, 
followed by the gaudiest and yet sleepiest of sunsets? Or, to choose a wholly unsubstantial instance, purely addressed to the fancy, why, in reading the old fairy tales of Central Europe, does the tall, pale man of the heart's forest, whose changeless pallor unrestingly glides through the green of the groves, why is this phantom more terrible than all the whooping imps of the Blocksburg? Nor is it, altogether, the remembrance of her cathedral toppling earthquakes, nor the stampedos of her frantic seas, nor the tearlessness of arid skies that never rain, nor the sight of her wide field of leaning spires, wrenched copestones, and crosses all adroop like canted yards of anchored fleets, and her suburban avenues of house walls lying over upon each other as a tossed pack of cards. It is not these things alone which makes tearless Lima the strangest, saddest city thou canst see. For Lima has taken the white veil, and there is a higher horror in this whiteness of her woe. Old as Pizarro, this whiteness keeps her ruins forever new, admits not the cheerful greenness of complete decay spreads over her broken ramparts the rigid pallor of an apoplexy that fixes its own distortions. I know that, to the common apprehension, this phenomenon of whiteness is not confessed to be the prime agent in exaggerating the terror of objects otherwise terrible. Not to the unimaginative mind is there aught of terror in those appearances whose awfulness to another mind almost solely consists in this one phenomenon, especially when exhibited under any form at all approaching to the muteness or universality. What I mean by these two statements may perhaps be respectively elucidated by the following examples. First, the mariner, when drawing nigh the coast of foreign lands, if by night he hear the roar of breakers, starts to vigilance, and feels just enough of trepidation to sharpen all his faculties. But under precisely similar circumstances, let him be called from his hammock to view his ship sailing through a midnight sea of milky whiteness, as if from encircling headland shoals of combed white bears were swimming round him, then he feels a silent, superstitious dread." The shrouded phantom of the whitened waters is horrible to him as a real ghost. In vain the lead assures him he is still off soundings. Heart and helm, they both go down. He never rests till blue water is again under him. Yet where is the mariner who will tell thee, Sir, it was not so much the fear of striking hidden rocks as the fear of that hideous whiteness that so stirred me? Second, to the native Indian of Peru, the continual sight of the snow-houted Andes conveys naught of dread, except, perhaps, in the mere fancying of the eternal frosted desolateness reigning at such vast altitudes, and the natural conceit of what a fearlessness it would be to lose oneself in such inhuman solitudes." Much the same is it with the backwoodsman of the West, 
who, with comparative indifference, views an unbounded prairie sheeted with driven snow, no shadow of tree or twig to break the fixed trance of whiteness. Not so the sailor, beholding the scenery of the Antarctic seas, where at times, by some infernal trick of ledger domain in the powers of frost and air, he, shivering and half shipwrecked, instead of rainbows speaking hope and solace to his misery, views what seems a boundless churchyard grinning upon him with its lean ice monuments and splintered crosses. But thou sayest, methinks this white lead chapter about whiteness is but a white flag hung out from a craven soul, thou surrenderest to a hypo, Ishmael. Tell me, why this strong young colt fold in some peaceful valley of Vermont, far removed from all beasts of prey, why is it that upon the sunniest of day, if you but shake a fresh buffalo robe behind him, so that he cannot even see it, but only smells its wild animal muskiness, why will he start, snort, and with bursting eyes paw the ground in frenzies of affright? There is no remembrance in him of any gorings of wild creatures in his green northern home, so that the strange muskiness he smells cannot recall to him anything associated with the experience of former perils. For what knows he, this New England colt, of the black bisons of distant Oregon? No, but here thou beholdest even in a dumb brute the instinct of the knowledge of the demonism in the world. Though thousands of miles from Oregon, still, when he smells that savage musk, the rending, goring bison herds are as present as to the deserted wild foal of the prairies, which this instant they may be trampling to dust. Thus, then, the muffled rollings of a milky sea, the bleak rustlings of the festooned frosts of mountains, the desolate shiftings of the windward snows of the prairies, all these, to Ishmael, are as the shaking of that buffalo robe to the frightened colt. Though neither knows where lie the nameless things of which the mystic sign gives forth such hints, yet with me, as with the colt, somewhere those things must exist, though in many of its aspects, this visible world seems formed in love. The invisible spheres were formed in fright. But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness and learned why it appeals with such power to the soul. And more strange and far more portentous, why, as we have seen, is it at once the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, and yet should be as it is the intensifying agent in the things most appalling to mankind. Is it that by its indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe, and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of annihilation, when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way? Or is it, that as in essence whiteness is not so much a color as the visible absence of color, and at the same time the concrete of all colors. Is it for these reasons 
that there is such a dumb blankness, full of meaning, in a wide landscape of snows, a colorless all-color of atheism from which we shrink? And when we consider that other theory of the natural philosophers, that all other earthly hues, every stately or lovely emblazoning, the sweet tinges of sunset skies and woods, yea, and the gilded velvets of butterflies, and the butterfly cheeks of young girls, all these are but subtle deceits, not actually inherent in substances, but only laid on from without, so that all deified nature absolutely paints like the harlot, whose allurements cover nothing but the charnel house within. And when we proceed further, and consider that the mystical cosmetic which produces every one of her hues, the great principle of light, forever remains white or colorless in itself. And if operating without medium upon matter, would touch all objects, even tulips and roses, with its own blank tinge. Pondering all this, the palsied universe lies before us a leper, and like willful travelers in Lapland, who refuse to wear colored and coloring glasses upon their eyes, so the wretched infidel gazes himself blind at the monumental white shroud that wraps all the prospect around him. And of all these things the albino whale was the symbol. Wonder ye then at the fiery hunt? This has been Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Please join us next time as the adventures of Captain Ahab and the crew of the Pequod continue.